in London. This is The Economist, and you're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast that gives you a sample of all of our coverage from the week. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and on your menu, China stops importing foreign rubbish, a trip to a Disneyland like Paris, and how to make better holograms. But first, it could happen was our cover line this week. North Korea is not exactly a superpower, but it is drawing the attention of the whole world as its arsenal of long-range missiles continues to expand and improve. In our cover leader, we explain that there are no good options to curb the bellicose leader Kim Jong-un, but blundering into a war would be the worst one. So how should the world deal with North Korea? On July 28th, it tested an intercontinental ballistic missile that could hit Los Angeles. Before long, it will be able to mount nuclear warheads on such missiles, as it already can on missiles aimed at South Korea and Japan. And the man posing behind the big red button? In charge of this terrifying arsenal is a man who was brought up as a demigod and cares nothing for human life. Witness the innocents beaten to death with hammers in his gigantic gulag. Some are calling for military intervention. President Donald Trump has vowed to stop North Korea from perfecting a nuclear warhead that could threaten the American mainland, tweeting that it won't happen. Some pundits suggest shooting down future test missiles on the launch pad or improbably in the air. Others suggest using force to overthrow the regime or preemptive strikes to destroy Mr Kim's nuclear arsenal before he has a chance to use it. Yet this sort of action could lead to catastrophic escalation. Mr Kim's bombs and missile launches are scattered and well hidden. America's armed forces, for all their might, cannot reliably neutralise the North Korean nuclear threat before Mr Kim has a chance to retaliate. The task would be difficult even if the Pentagon had good intelligence about North Korea. It does not. It is better to contain than provoke, and President Trump should act accordingly. He should affirm that a nuclear attack by North Korea on America or one of its allies will immediately be matched. Mr Kim cares about his own skin. He enjoys the life of a dissolute deity, living in a palace and with the power to kill or bed any of his subjects. If he were to unleash a nuclear weapon, he would lose his luxuries and his life. So would his cronies. That means they can be deterred. From one sordid situation, we move on to another, but this time the topic is rubbish. China is one of the world's most fervent importers of recycled waste, but it seems to have lost its taste for foreign trash. This could disrupt a global trade worth billions of dollars, as an article in our China section explained. China dominates international trade in many goods, but few more than waste for recycling. It sucked in more than half the world's exports of scrap copper and waste paper in 2016, and half of its used plastic – All in all, China spent over $18 billion on imports of rubbish last year. And while China likes to take it all in, other countries, like America, have a lot to dish out. In 2016, nearly a quarter of America's biggest exporters by volume were recyclers of paper, plastic or metal. Topping the list was America Chung Nam, a California-based supplier of waste paper, which last year exported a whopping 333,900 containers, almost all of them to China. This to and fro of detritus may soon end, however. 
On July 18th, China told the World Trade Organization that by the end of the year it will no longer accept imports of 24 categories of solid waste as part of a government campaign against yang laji, or foreign garbage. Part of the reason is that some recyclable waste contains unwanted surprises. In 1996, factories in Xinjiang inadvertently imported more than 100 tonnes of radioactive metal from Kazakhstan. It was not the glowingest of moments. But restricting these imports has some onlookers concerned. The proposed import ban will disrupt billions of dollars in trade. Recyclers worry that other categories of waste may soon receive the same treatment. For more trashy talk, pick up a copy of this week's issue. For now, a trip to Paris, but not quite as you may know it. In our Europe section this week, an article reported on a well-crafted imitation of France's capital city designed and built by Walt Disney. Disney has experienced building replicas of Paris. At the Epcot theme park in Florida, the French pavilion recreates a Parisian market, wine bar and a mini Eiffel Tower. And the staff are all grumpy. Mais monsieur, mais qu'est-ce que c'est que ça? And the company's most ambitious, Faux Paris, isn't even in a theme park. A few kilometres down the road from Disneyland is the commercial heart of Val d'Europe, a cluster of imitation Belle Epoque housing blocks with mansard roofs surrounding a giant shopping centre. All of it is built to design guidelines lifted from Baron Haussmann, the architect of Paris's mid-19th century reconstruction. Mais ce n'était pas la première fois que la société a fait un grand projet de construction. In Florida, it was celebration, an idealized community of picket fences and front porches that promised a return to 1950s America. Val d'Europe shares celebration's principle of new urbanism, which promotes mixed zoning, density and walkability. C'est chic, c'est chouette. But the design decisions came from the French bureaucracy. The last thing they wanted to see was a new idea, says a former Disney executive involved in the negotiations. Mais sacre bleu! Now for a taste of our other podcast from this week. In Money Talks, our business and finance podcast, we reported on David Beckham's goal to launch his own professional soccer club in Miami. Our data guru and sports correspondent, James Tozer, walked us through the long road the footballer has traveled to fulfill his dreams. It was in 2007 when he signed for LA Galaxy, he was given a clause in his contract which said that he could buy a franchise uh, in Major League Soccer for $25 million, but it's taken a decade for that to come to any kind of fruition. Most of the opposition has actually been within Miami itself, which is where he's decided to try and uh, introduce his franchise. And most of the opposition has come from local businesses who have been worried about the impact that a new stadium might have uh, on the area around them. So can Mr. Beckham dodge the opposition and be victorious once more? Go and listen to the Money Talks podcast. On our science and technology podcast, Babbage, which I host, we explore the recent advances in holography. Our correspondent, Peter Haynes, explained how scientists have borrowed some ideas from the morpho butterfly to get cheaper, better holograms. First, it completely dispenses with lasers. And second, the hologram is captured not on a smooth photographic film, but rather on a sheet of transparent plastic with microscopic bumps and grooves on it. So in essence, the bumps and grooves of that plastic sheet acts like the scales of the morpho's wings, refracting and defracting the instant light to um, produce the effect you want. The fascinating thing with this is that to create the hologram, 
you don't need a laser. You can use a simple cheap flashlight that you can buy from a hardware store. And finally, on this week's Economist Asks, we tackled the issue of China's expanding role in artificial intelligence. The country has just announced its ambition to lead the world in the field by 2020. Our guest was the venture capitalist Neil Shen, and the host was Anne McElvoy. She asked him how China's approach to AI differs from competitors around the world. You need data for artificial intelligence development, and we have tons of data whether it's Alibaba's transaction data to the social network data from you know, WeChat, etc. And on top of that, when you're looking at the researchers and experts in that space, there are many actually are Chinese. And if you're looking at quotations, you know, research papers, the Chinese AI research in the world has a very decent market share. And so with that, I think we have a very good chance to take a lead. Our final taste of this week's issue comes from the letters to the editor section of the paper. A recent article explored a growing new demographic, the over 65s, who are healthy and not yet elderly. We had a lot of response about this from our healthy and not yet elderly readership, particularly as to what to name the group. We called it pretirees. There were some other suggestions. David Ogilvie from New York said, I am now evidently able to refer to myself as geriactive, a sunsetter, a nightcapper, a nippy, or as one of the owls. But after reading the reference to the Rolling Stones in your special report on longevity of July 8th, I think I'll plump for Jaggernaut. It's a fine choice. Bradford Hawkins from Irvine, California, had this suggestion. How about indie, as in... I'm not dead yet. Another sensible option was put forward by Lars Henriksen from Christianstad, Sweden. Friends of ours invented the acronym HOPSKIS, Healthy Old People Spending Kids' Inheritance, which sums it up pretty well. And finally, Father Emmanuel Kahn from Warrington, Cheshire, had this defiant statement on the matter. Being 79, I'm in the midst of longevity. Yes, I am an owl. Older, working less, still earning. But that also means older, wiser, still learning. And indeed, we all are after the Tasting Menu podcast. We're all older, wiser, and still learning. And that's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. If you have any thoughts about any of our podcasts, as always, email them to radio at economist.com. Remember to share our shows on social media. And if you like our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. Go to subscribe.economist.com. Et bien entendu, à Londres, c'est l'économiste.